Welcome to the Game of Crowdfunding, recorded July 1st, 2013, sponsored by All Us Geeks. And of course, this is what we call our off week, or as I'm going to start calling it, our interview week. So today we are going to be talking to... Hi, my name is Jason Slingerland. I'm a game designer, and uh, I am the co-host of the Building the Game podcast. I'm looking to start a Kickstarter here on July 8th for my new game called Water Balloon Washouts. A couple of questions that we usually ask every guest, or at least we do when we remember. <laughs> First one, are you ready? Yes. What do you do professionally, sir, besides uh, game design? Unless that's it, unless you're one of the lucky no, few. <laughs> that, would be, that would be very awesome if that was it. Someday, maybe someday. Right now, in my daily life, I am a uh, database uh, analyst uh, who works with mortgages. So it's uh, high adrenaline, <laughs> thrill-a-minute stuff. No, I mean, it's, it's stuff that I, I enjoy. I've been doing it for a little over a decade now. So it's, you know, it's a good day job to uh, parlay into me being able to do more creative stuff at night when I'm working on game design. <laughs> and our follow-up is what makes you a geek? Oh, man. I think it'd be easier to say what doesn't make me a geek. <laughs> you know, games are, are the big thing. You know, I've, uh, I've been into games for the longest time, but I'm also into, into comics and all sorts of other geeky things, uh, movies and such. Uh, but, you know, games is really kind of my core. You know, I'm always want to try new board games, new tabletop games, and uh, you know, the geekier the better, right? So, do you have uh, any uh, geek-related passions that some some people might not consider geek when they first hear about it, but it's something that you are very passionate about? That's a good question. I think you know, when I tell people that I'm I'm passionate about movies, I've done some filmmaking in the past as well, and uh, when I tell them I'm passionate about movies, I think most people think of you know your standard movies, but obviously, I'm more passionate about geeky type movies <laughs> okay let's start and let's just get to know jason a little bit here so building the game podcast you've been doing that for uh, a little while now why don't you tell our listeners what uh what the idea behind that is sure we uh started that podcast um, a little over a year ago it's myself and uh rob couch a fellow game designer we both had been intrigued by the idea of designing games and had, had both designed some stuff just for ourselves over the years and uh we decided we really wanted to start to get serious about that and uh, really start working on trying to design games to be published. So we started, uh, we got together, we didn't really know what we were doing about recording or about game design. So we thought, why, why not make a podcast so that we could kind of bring people through our journey as we went from being people that didn't know anything about game design, you know, to, to where we are now, where we feel more comfortable and I have a game that's being published uh, by Hattrick Games that'll be coming out next year. And then I've decided to try and do the Kickstarter as well for uh, Water Balloon Washout. It's been a journey <laughs> over the last year. A lot of lessons learned, for sure. And where can my listeners find your podcast? Uh, sure. You can find us uh, on iTunes. Just search for Building the Game. Uh, you can also find us uh, at buildingthegamepodcast.com. And uh, also, of course, we're on Twitter at, at PodcastBTG. You can find us in any one of those places. Uh, we're pretty active in all of them. So, Why don't you, because uh, this is kind of interesting to me, especially since I'm a big movie geek. My fiance is a huge movie geek. Can you share a little bit of, of what you've done uh, in the, the movie side of things, since you said you kind of delved in that a bit? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, I, my, my college degree is in, is in broadcasting and film. 
And uh, I always wanted to make films. Just out of college, I uh, I did some short films and stuff, and nothing nothing that big. And a few years out of college, I really wanted to try and make a feature film. I got together with some with some other friends who had some equipment and, and some different things, and uh, I wrote a script for a film called Coffee Shop Kings, and we shot it. And uh, I played at some festivals, won an award. It's pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> wasn't like a big, oh, let's make a ton of money or something. But I mean, it, it paid for itself, which was pretty awesome, right? I mean, yeah, that's that's huge, actually. <laughs> most people that you know that make films, will, especially independent films, will tell you they rarely break even. You usually end up owing a bunch. And, you know, I made some really good deals with some people. We, we filmed in a very small town uh, who was super receptive to having us there. And, uh, I mean, they closed down streets for us. They gave us police when we needed them, all at no charge, because they, they just were so excited that we were highlighting their town and the film. Um, the film was filmed in Michigan, and it was set in Michigan, too. So they were they were very excited about that. Yeah, so we, we premiered it. Uh, we did good. We, you know, we, we showed it at some theaters around Michigan, and uh, it's on Internet Movie Database, if you care to look it up. You can look up Coffee Shop Kings or Jason Slingerland. After that, I had worked with Rob just a little bit on that movie. Rob had done some logo design for us, Rob, for the podcast. I mean, him and I had been going to Gen Con for, I had been going for a few years. His first year, he went with me. And uh, while we were there, I uh, I just said, you know, I see all these people sleeping at Gen Con, like sleeping around on benches and all these things. And they just seem to be kind of slumming it. And I thought, I wonder if you could do that. I wonder if you could show up at Gen Con with no food, no money, and nowhere to stay. And, you know, not only survive, but kind of thrive through the experience. Well, so we hired our friend on, uh, when I say hired, I mean, stronger, basically, our friend Will <laughs> participating with us. And he was, he was, uh, he was happy to do it. He's one of those guys that'll try anything once. And so uh, we said, you've never been to Gen Con. He's a geek about some things, but uh, mostly cars and such. Uh, and we've, we've brought him over to the, to the more geeky side of things. Uh, but he decided he'd come with us. And so we did, we showed up, uh, our wives dropped us off. And we literally uh, had no food, no money, and no place to stay. And we we did awesome at the con. Uh, we traded uh, buttons that we had brought that said HoboCon on them, which was the name of the movie. We traded those uh, for food and for money for people that we interviewed. And then we bummed rooms from people. And that worked really well. We ended up sleeping in a, a closet of a penthouse on the 23rd floor of the Embassy Suites. So that was pretty awesome. <laughs> It was one of those crazy adventures that, you know, you'll tell your kids about someday and they'll think, wow, my dad's crazy. Yeah. So that was that we made that film. And this was that was, uh, I think, in 2009, we shot that. Uh, and then back in 2010, we decided to, you know, so when you're an independent filmmaker and you don't have much money, you know, to make the films, you really tend to focus when you're writing. At least I always did. on what do I know is capable? Like, what, what can we do with what we have? Um, and, and it can get kind of frustrating, right? Because, I mean, you're so focused on trying to, you know, do what you can with what you have. And you have these bigger stories in your head that you want to produce. And I finally just said, screw it. I'm, I'm going to write a movie. It's going to be big. And we're going to figure out how to do it with the, with, with what we have. Uh, so uh, Rob and I got together and hammered out, hammered out a story. Uh, and I wrote a script for a movie called Atrophy. And that movie we filmed in 2010, uh, late 2010. It didn't finish till almost the end of the year. And since then, it's been a post-production uh, because it's a, it's a sci-fi action-adventure film about a guy who finds himself in this other world uh, and he's fighting to get home. Uh, a lot of it takes place in deserts and uh, these dying forests. And we filmed it all in Michigan, which is a testament to how awesome Michigan is a place to film movies because uh, you don't think of deserts when you think of Michigan, but when you see this movie, you certainly will. 
And uh, look, some of the places we were looked a lot like Tatooine. I'm not kidding. <laughs> you know, so that film's in post-production. Uh, because it's a sci-fi film, there were a lot of effects we needed to do. We did everything that we could practical. I mean, the actors all had two solid months of fight choreography training um, so that they could learn all the fights and they could you know, just do them like a dance routine by the end. Uh, but really, you know, there were still some things that we had to we had to switch to CG for just for safety reasons and for cost reasons, too. Yeah, so we did as much as we could practical. Now it's in post-production. It's getting pretty close to done. Uh, I'm supposed to actually get some stuff this week for it. I mean, I've, I've seen it, and I'm really happy with what we have. Uh, we had a guy out of Belgium who we uh, brought on to do the score, and he just did a fantastic job with it. He just nailed it. Yeah, so there's the movies. <laughs> awesome. If you ever do a horror movie, come talk to me, because my other podcast is a horror podcast. <laughs> it's one of the things we talked about, you know, I have to say, one of the things that's gotten me out of movies, other than the fact that, you know, we still have one in post-production and it's been, you know, I mean, it's just, it's been a huge thing to have it in post-production for so long. Unfortunately, when you're trying to make a big epic movie for not a lot of money, that's what happens. Yeah. It's best to have a post-production with people working on it when they can. But the thing that's so appealing about game design compared to that is, I mean, I look at in a year, I, you know, after a year and a half, we'll say, of doing this podcast, I should have two games published, <laughs> have tried a lot of other prototypes that I designed, and it didn't cost that much, you know? So there's the risk-reward with uh, with the game design thing. It is, it's kind of appealing. Not that I would, you know, say game design is a second or anything. I mean, I've, I've always wanted to design games. It's just now I have more time to do that because we're not doing the film things. And, you know, it's one of those things that now that I've actually started doing it more, I'm like, why wasn't I doing this a long time ago? <laughs> Right. Jason, this is going to be your first Kickstarter, correct? That is correct. So we've got somebody brand new to Kickstarter this time around. So we're going to be able to ask some questions here and, and get some insight on uh, what Jason was able to go through to, or, or what he planned for going up to his launch next week. All right, so let's see here. Uh, you said you recently sold a game. So why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it was actually, it started last year at, uh, at Gen Con. As part of the podcast, uh, Rob and I were working on trying to find a board game design that we had that we could each, you know, both of us separately could each take our uh, game to Gen Con. You know, we were pretty early in the process on both of ours, and I was really just hoping to get some feedback on my game. It was called, it's called Gunsling and Ramblers. Um, it's a game about, uh, about cowboys playing poker and drinking whiskey and, and shooting each other. You know, it's a, it's a fun theme. You know, when we talk about it on the show, people seem to like. So I brought it to Gen Con. I just wanted to bring it to Unpub. Uh, so I got on um, the Unpub list uh, that John puts out. I was just hoping to get some feedback from other game designers. Turns out, a publisher saw my name on the list, thought the game sounded interesting, asked to meet. I demoed it for him and some, some friends of his. And soon after that, we made a deal. Very so nice development ever since. Uh, I just met him again at Origins and because uh, he's from Ohio for Hacktrick Games. And... We, we met down there and we went, you know, we revamped a lot of the rules and stuff and got some good testing in. And it's, it's just been, it's been really cool to work on that uh, and see that side of it working with the publisher. And it looks like it'll go up on Kickstarter later this year and uh, should launch early next year, I believe. So, yeah. Okay. So you're working with a, a smaller publisher. So you're having a little more input than say going to a bigger publisher where you uh, might not hear about the game again until it's out. <laughs> So they say, hey, you see this game with your name on the box? Yeah. Uh, you know, I've heard about that a lot with, you know, talking to different 
designers who've worked with bigger publishers and smaller publishers. And, you know, I think there are positives and negatives to both, right? I mean, a uh, bigger publisher certainly has a chance of selling more games. I mean, at least reason would say that. Smaller publisher, you're going to get a lot more input. You know, and, I mean, I got input to the point where I had got an artist to do, I think, three or four drawings for me, just because I wanted to kind of show my idea for the theme um, and just kind of give anybody I showed, you know, when I was when I was testing it, some real, you know, just kind of insight into my thoughts on on kind of the style. But I went ahead and just quoted the artist for what would it cost to get all of the artwork done. The publisher ended up using hiring the artist that I, <laughs> I had um, because, you know, his work is, is phenomenal and uh, there was no reason not to. I think with a bigger company, you might run into uh, the fact that they have kind of the standards that they work with, you know, who kind of fit into their uh, wheelhouse. And so it was cool that I could work with my own, who I, I dealt with very well and I still do. I've uh, work with him on other projects. He's actually uh, the same person who's doing the artwork for Water Balloon Washout. So, mm, nice. I think developing those relationships really helps. Yeah. But yeah, smaller publisher. So far, I've had tons of input into the game. That's been great. Um, I appreciate having that input. Well, and and I think too, it's it comes down to if you really just want to be on the design side of gaming and not publish yourself, then you need to get used to the idea of relinquishing a certain amount of control. <laughs> I think, you know, just as, as much as they tell you, you really need to look at a publisher, see what, what games they, you know, what games they publish and what really fits their type of game that they want to publish to make sure before you can pitch to them, right. That you're not wasting their time or your time. But I think in addition to that, you really need to, if you can talk to other people who've been published by them to kind of get, you know, an idea of what to expect. I mean, I certainly have, I did it before I talked to Hattrick Games just because that was the first time I talked to a publisher. But I've since then have, when I've looked at other publishers to possibly pitch other games, so I've always talked to friends who I know have been published by them just to get their feedback and see, you know, because you, you can't do enough research about that for yourself and, you know, for the publisher. Make it better for everybody. So do you have a typical design process that you like to follow or does it just depend on the game? I kind of do. I mean, I certainly break outside of it sometimes, depending on the type of game. I'll tell you my typical process, and I'll tell you some some ways that that gets changed depending on the type of game. You know, for a standard game, I, I I've designed mostly card games. Uh, I'm I'm working on on some board game things now, but uh, in fact, the game I'm bringing to Gen Con uh, this year to try and pitch uh, is a is a board game. But you know, my my standard process is I'll get an idea. For me, it's almost always theme before mechanics. It's very rare that I have a mechanic pop up, and I think, I need to make a game that fits that mechanic. Generally, I'll think of a theme, and I'll start writing notes about the theme, and then I'll start thinking about, hey, what mechanics would would serve this theme well? And what mechanics would would help you know, this theme kind of shine and be, be different than maybe other things in the theme? So I make a lot of notes about that, and then I usually bust out an Excel spreadsheet. And if it's a card game, I'll, I'll start to list all the cards and uh, list what they can do, and I'll start to kind of play with the numbers to... Think of some percentages, and sometimes, to be honest, I just guess. Sometimes I take a lot of time and think about it. But usually for me, when I'm really struck with an idea that I think is good, my really my goal is to get a prototype made as quickly as possible. Just a super rough prototype. Uh, my standard is I have a, a format that I've made in Word uh, that I just type into, like a, if it's nine cards on a page, I just type into that uh, for each of the cards, uh, a lot of copying and pasting. I print those off, cut them out, uh, throw them in card sleeves. And then I'll start to play test. And 
what's nice is you're not at all attached to that design. I mean, you're not at all attached to any artwork or anything. I mean, you just, you literally just laid it out and it is the bare minimum game, you know, so the theme doesn't always shine through as much, obviously in that case, because there's nothing to support the theme other than you're hoping the mechanics support it well. But yeah, that's kind of my typical process. Now, something I've learned the hard way is uh, I've designed a couple deck building games that I, I haven't done anything with yet. And for anyone that's ever tried to design a deck building game, you'll understand the dilemma here, which is every time you have to cut those cards out and put those cards in the card sleeves to find out that the balance was off and you have to start over, that's really frustrating, right? I mean, <laughs> because you're talking 300 cards in, for some of these games, especially for the first draft, because you kind of shoot high because you don't know. At least I do. So with that, I found myself, I take a lot of time in an Excel spreadsheet running, just running formulas to figure out percentage for how many of these type of cards do I need to have to these type of cards. That really helps save me some time. It'll usually save me a draft or two that I won't waste time printing in the beginning, play one game and then think, oh, I have to completely change this, you know? So, okay. So you, you go through this design process. How long do you usually play test it? Do you have a, a set idea in your, in your head? Yeah. You know, it, I mean, it's different with every game and it really depends on how far I get with the game, most games I play test at least, we'll say, five or six times before I'll say, you know, I'm going to put that one down for now, you know, or, hey, I think this has some more merit. This is still very interesting to me. I want to keep working on it. I, I kind of have that issue where I'll get in these these times where, I mean, I've always got plenty of ideas for themes. And, you know, I've played a lot of games and I've, I've seen a lot of mechanics and I, you know, I have I have the ones that I like and I the ways that are interesting to use them and so, you know, I'm never short of ideas, I guess, but there are times where I'll go through and I'll, I mean, in the span of a month, I'll have three or four really solid ideas that I want to pursue. So that can be tough. Usually if I have to say three good ideas, I feel like are great ideas in a month, I would prototype two of them. I'd pick the two that I like the most, prototype it, and then just kind of start testing them with people and see what people think and see what I think. You know, I've had, I think that in the last year, I've made probably eight or nine solid prototypes, we'll say. I think that sounds about right. And only three of those have I said, all right, I'm, I'm definitely moving forward with this game. And uh, those were Gunsling Ramblers, which I, I sold, uh, Water Balloon Washout, which I'm going to try and self-publish, and then the game I'm working on now called Sandbox Showdown, which I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be bringing to Gen Con to kind of shop around. Okay, so you've got one that you've got out to a designer or a publisher, sorry. You've got one that you want to self-publish and then another one you're going to bring to Gen Con to hopefully shop around again. So what what made you decide you wanted to try the self-publishing route? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I guess because I'm crazy. Who's <laughs> 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 done Kickstarters, they would tell you that. Even people I know who've been very successful have said, it's the most stressful 30-ish days of your life. <laughs> yeah. It was kind of organic. Um, as part of the show, With um, uh, I was working on on, on different designs. And so in the beginning, before I was able to sell my first game, we just kind of had it in our heads that nobody would buy our stuff. And so we'd probably have to self-publish, which I think is probably, you know, that defeatist attitude. I think I might have that to start with, unless you're just crazy optimistic. And if you are, good for you. But I was not one of those people and neither was my co-host, Rob. So, you know, we kind of went into it thinking we're just going to have to publish our own stuff. It's nobody's going to buy it. So, after that happened, and, and I, I realized why maybe I could sell games, uh, and the idea of selling games was very appealing to me because if you sold games to multiple publishers, 
you could have more than one going at a time. And I, I like that, right? Because they're doing the, the long labor intensive work and you're able to be a designer more often. But I, then I, I kept thinking, you know, I would love to know what it takes to, you know, because most publishers, they do a lot of work, but they do put the games on Kickstarter. I mean, that's become pretty standard, even for, you know, companies who have published quite a few games now, quite a few successful games. You know, think of somebody like Dice Hate Me. I mean, they still put their games on Kickstarter because why not? Right? I mean, it's a it's a it's a great way to launch to get a lot of advertisement and uh, to get some seed money to to do the first order of the game. I mean, what's not to love, right? Yeah. No, you're going to be successful. <laughs> what's not to love? <laughs> so, you know, I just thought I, I should really, I should really try this and see, you know, see if I can, I can do it. And so I looked at my designs and I, I really was in love with this, this, the, this game. Uh, now it's the water balloon uh, game. Before that, it was a, a game about snowball uh, fighting. Um, we ended up doing a retheme on it just because there was another snowball game that happened to be coming out at some point. And, you know, I mean, I know that you can have like 4,000 zombie games, but I was concerned about having a football games uh, in the realm at the same time, uh, just because it's not zombies, right? <laughs> I mean, it's a little more, it's a little more niche of a theme, I would say. So, so anyways, uh, we rethemed that and I started looking at it and the game is just a 90 card deck, it's a total card game, 90 card deck, a rule sheet fits in a tuck box very nicely. And I thought if I was ever going to try and self-publish something, this would be the game to try and self-publish because it's, you know, there's, I don't have to ask for a ton of money uh, to publish it. I believe 100% that I can put this on Kickstarter and we can get it funded. So that's, that's kind of how that started. I thought we'll give this a try. And now if this, if this goes well, certainly uh, I would look into publishing something else and I would probably try and foray into something a little more difficult, a board game or something, you know, that's going to be a little more, a little higher cost to produce. The thing too, about since we're doing the 90 card deck, I can get that printed by Delano Services, which Delano has printed a lot of different games, most notably Who, um, which is a, uh, it's a game with, it's not a ton of cards, it's in a tuck box. Uh, so when I saw, I looked at their website and saw that they had uh, used that, I thought, well, that's cool. And uh, Jeremiah Lee uh, is also a, a designer uh, who's from Michigan, he lives in Ann Arbor, and we're in Kalamazoo. And Jeremiah was using uh, them for his new zombie game, Zombie Hunts Blitz. So I I looked up Delano and they had, if you're just printing something simple, uh, like I was, they have a really, you know, really good rates. And the best is I can drive to the shop and pick it up. I don't even have to have them ship it to me. Nice. Something you ship from China, I will tell you, is pretty awesome. Yeah. So that was a huge draw to that. And that, that just made everything more, more possible uh, because it meant that I could ask for less money on Kickstarter and not have to, you know, need a huge budget. Well, you know what? Let's uh, let's let's give Water Balloon Washout the uh, rest of the show here. Before we actually talk about it specifically, though, why don't you tell us a little bit about what kind of research and and what you've done to prepare to launch the Kickstarter? You know, for the last year or so, when we've been working on the podcast, we've been following Kickstarter, you know, very faithfully, trying to look at the trends and look at what's happening, and you know, not just what causes people to succeed, but what causes people to fail, you know, mm-hmm. because that's, I think, even more prevalent, right? I mean, because you look at the Kickstarters that don't make it, and I, I think you can see reasons why a lot of times, at least we feel like we can, you know, when you look at the ones that, that super succeed, and sometimes you can say, oh, that's because they did this, and other times you can say, that's because that's a hot thing right now, right? You know, <laughs> that really does, you know, a thing to do with it. And so Water Balloon Washout, not uh, necessarily a hot theme, water balloons these days, uh, but you know, it's 
unique theme that's not offensive and it's not uh so basically you, you went in partially with the idea even back in game design that that this was going to be more of a fast quick family friendly type game right yeah i mean and it's certainly not like i wanted to design a game this is something i and I'll, i can come back to more of the kickstarter research because i did a lot more <laughs> I, I do want to touch on this because you brought up something really important i don't want to design it just a family game right because you know i at heart i'm a gamer right you know when i grew up being forced to play a lot of family games you know and, and you have a good time with those sometimes but uh, it just you know they didn't really speak to me right i mean because ass market they weren't you know lots of roll and move lots of that kind of stuff and you know i, I really i wanted to be able to make a game that was that felt accessible right that i could sit down with a with anyone i could get my family um you know kids 12 and up right i mean i wanted to be able to sit down with them and say check this game out it's about water balloons here's how you play it and i wanted to be able to explain it in about two to three minutes tops and you know that that makes it sound like oh the game's got to be super simple but you know it really does the other game i'm working on sandbox showdown is, is very complex i can get you started playing it in five minutes or less as you play the game you're like oh gosh there's a lot of things in here that could be complicated <laughs> and this you know the same goes for water balloon washout I, so I guess what I wanted to do was I wanted to make a game that I could get my family and friends and I could get my wife to want to play the game, but that I could also sit down with a group of gamers. We could play it for a role-playing session or before uh, we got into, you know, a heavier strategy game uh, that we could play it and they would want to play it again. You know, that was important to me. And you know, I wanted people who like to play a game like Pandemic to still be happy playing this game. You know what I mean? Right. So that was really kind of my driving goal. So, and I think so many times the issue with games not feeling accessible has nothing to do with the with with the rules or the play style. It has everything to do with the theme. You know, there are games that I I know for a fact that, for instance, my wife would love, uh, but she's not as interested in them because she looks at the theme and is like, nah, you know, it's just not really up my alley. Whereas if you just reskin the game with a theme that I'm not, you know, somebody who's not a big gamer understands. Um, and it feels like as easy as easy to approach. I think that you can hook them into complex strategy games that you know they'll uh, they'll be willing to buy into because the theme speaks to them. So now that said, Waterloo Watch that is by no means like a high strategy game. <laughs> well, just real quick, uh, by no means is do I think family friendly is a curse <laughs> because what I think today, uh, especially what's going on in in the game market today, is that people are starting to produce those games where they're willing to play, not willing, they're having fun playing while still being able to play it with the family and casual players, where before it was like eight or nine-year-old comes up to you with a game and you kind of go, uh, I'm a parent, I got to do this. <laughs> and now you're starting to see a, a nice surgence of games where it's, okay, let, let's play this. I'll have fun or it's something that I'm not going to dread playing. But a lot of times it's something like I'll have a lot of fun. And, you know, like you just said, on a game night or something like that, it might even be something that gets brought out for the quick play. Yep. And I don't think that's a bad thing at all. I mean, that's, that's awesome that that's happening and that we're getting to a point where it is easier to pull in the younger and the more casual and the family to where they're going, Oh, that was a lot of fun. What, you know, what else do you have? You've shown me something that I had a lot of fun with and you start to kind of build up that trust on, on games as long as you don't try to break out something 
massive on them that, you know, just because you love it doesn't necessarily mean they will, but you're starting to build up that trust with the the games you kind of show them. So I didn't mean it as a curse by any means. I think it's, it's good if that you're going into that arena and giving us one more option to play with our our friends and our family and our casual gamers. Right. Yeah. That's, you know, that's exactly it. And I wasn't, I mean, I don't necessarily think uh, family games are cursed. Uh, Statistics will show you that family games have a harder time on Kickstarter uh, when they're looking to, you know, like, I think what really hurts that market can be board games only because they can be so expensive to produce that you need a lot of starting money. And you don't always get the gamer buy-in, even though the gamers could sit down and play the game. You know, it's, it's funny. I talk about it being accessible to everyone. Uh, but I think you get some of the same stereotypes, right, where a gamer would look at a game and say, oh, that just looks like a family game. They'd be like, this is great. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, and and to kind of point at that or to to stress that a bit, I've I sat down and had a conversation with Philip Debari, who's published and published across multiple publishers, but his family vacation game on Kickstarter was unsuccessful, and I don't think it was a bad game. I think it was uh, there was a solid game there, but you know he's kind of going back and forth. I think a little bit and wondering if the fact that family was in the title didn't hurt him. Right. You know, and that's, that's tough. I mean, cause he's a, he's a great example, right? Because he's a successful designer who had an unsuccessful campaign. And you know, that's kind of everyone's worst fear, right? Especially for the new people who are like, I'm not, uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm a soon to be published designer, but I don't have any clout behind my name, you know, but I, I it's, you know, it's, it's tough. I, I do think that in an instance like that, you've got, People, because I mean, I like you. I've never played that game, but I know people who have, and they have all said it was very fun. You know, and it's about the trusting that designer. But yeah, it's you know, it can be tough. You know, I, I I'm with you. All right, so research. Yes, I was just gonna say. <laughs> so research. Um, you know, in addition to really paying attention to kind of the trending on Kickstarter, you know, and to be honest, I would never let that influence my game design, as in to say like. I'm going to design a game because this is the type of thing that's selling on Kickstarter. We actually talked a lot about that on our podcast. But instead, obviously, I may look at the games I've designed that I'd like to try and publish and say, okay, which game do I think could succeed on there uh, that fits kind of my standards for what I'm looking to do? So, you know, that was kind of how Water Balloon Washout came, you know, came to the top for that. Uh, but for other research we did, you know, I have, I've had some friends that have run Kickstarters. I've worked with them very closely and they've run successful Kickstarters and looking at kind of what the, what they did and what missteps they made. And we've been able to talk to people on the show about that too. And that's, you know, being able to talk to people who've done Kickstarters, even successful ones, you know, can tell you about a lot of pitfalls and a lot of mistakes they made on a very successful Kickstarter. I mean, one guy, I don't remember who off the top of my head, but I mean, you know, he said he lost his house because of fulfilling his Kickstarter promises. Oh, yeah, it, the Glory to Rome campaign. His Kickstarter was wildly successful, and that hurt him. Well, yeah, that one was a little misleading, though. It, it was there were some poor choices made along the way. I know the the title of the article is something along the lines of you know Kickstarter popularity made this guy lose his house or something like that. But really, it was more the the planning and processing. I think. Uh, and and some decisions made even prior to the Kickstarter or during the Kickstarter. I'm just saying, if you don't do your research, right. um, yeah, I looked very closely at the cost to ship the game because when you say, for instance, our game is going to be fifteen dollars with fifteen dollars free shipping within the U.S., 
Um, there'll be, I think, 10 bucks added if you're shipping outside the U.S., uh, which is, you know, pretty standard. Um, that's kind of your safety net. <laughs> it should cost less than that. But, you know, you look at producing a game, um, and it, you know, produces for a couple bucks or a few bucks, we'll say. Then you look at what Kickstarter is going to take, which they take their percentage, and Amazon takes their percentage. And you just plan on losing about about 10%, uh, you know, with that whole thing. Um, sometimes a little more. Plus, you've got taxes to pay. And so, you know, it's really about doing the math. And we went into this saying, I, I said, I'm going to do a goal of $5,000. That's that's my goal. And I'm going to put a little money aside. And if, if we only make 5000 and I need to kick some extra money in to make the game, I'm going to. And then I redid some figures and I said, you know, I'm going to ask for 7000 And I'm still going to say that. <laughs> if we just take, I'm going to put some of my own money in to make sure that, you know, everything is fulfilled. And I think that's something that if, if, if you're going to do a Kickstarter, if you have any way of putting some money aside so that you can be prepared for what you may need to kick in, right? In case your map was flawed, uh, you know, or you get overzealous with the uh, stretch goals, right? You know, that, that type of thing. I think that's really important to budget very well. I've heard a lot of people with successful Kickstarters say they've almost lost money just because of shipping. It's really easy to to have the rates go up or to change. Oh, I need to send it in this package, not that package. Wow, that's $2 extra. And I sold 2,000 ver- you know, copies of this game. All right. So you've talked about putting putting aside a little bit of money. Now, that that's something that you, you'll put aside and then leave alone until you've successfully delivered the project, right? Yeah. I mean, leave alone as in leave there unless I need to use it. That's right. What I- <laughs> I just think if, if you're able to do that, and you know, because we, we plan this quite a ways in advance, I was able to do that. And you know, another resource too is really read Kickstarter itself, right? I mean, Kickstarter will tell you a lot of percentages, and you know, those percentages don't always feel like they mean something, right? You know, like you'll read, I want to say like 30 or 35. When you hit 35% of your funded goal, this huge percentage of people, like 80% or something, make it once they hit that goal. And you, you see games all the time fail to hit that goal, right? Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is, you know, that's that's what statistics tell you. And I think you can use those, but you also have to kind of take it with a grain of salt. Um, you know, they'll tell you doing a video, obviously, is, is helpful. And, you know, just, man, I, the thing I stress the most is really doing the research on the cost. You know, getting your quotes from the, from the printers, uh, you know, from for your shipping, if you're going to fulfill it yourself. Uh, we're going to do the fulfillment ourselves. Uh, rather than have somebody like GameSlew do it just because we want to make it a little bit cheaper. Uh, we don't mind doing the work ourselves. But, you know, also looking for your, your artwork, what that's going to cost. And if you start to promise stretch goals, and make sure that, you know, your your artwork you're going to do for that is going to be cost effective and you're still going to be able to afford it. And the other thing, the big thing with, that is sh- with shipping and stretch goals is, you know, I've, I've heard people say, oh, I added this and this and this to my game. And then the shipping costs like, you know, a bunch more because I went overweight on it because I added these new components to my game. And that's something you really gotta, you really gotta watch. Not that I think people shouldn't add a ton of stretch goals when they can. And, and we have some awesome stretch goals planned for ours, but because we're shipping cards and all the stretch goals involve more cards uh, and, you know, different things like that, it's easy to, to look at the weight and say, okay, cool. We'll still be under this weight. It, it'll cost an extra 50 cents to ship that. No problem. All right. You've done some research leading up to your launch next week on July 8th, and you'll be launching with Water Balloon Washout. So now let's tell our listeners what Water Balloon Washout is. Sure. Yeah, that's a great idea. So Water Balloon Washout, uh, it's a two to four player. It's a really fast paced. Uh, like I said, it's light strategy. 
Um, plays in about 15 minutes. And uh, in the game, you control a group of kids who is uh, who are having a water balloon fight. And uh, you play cards like uh, water balloon or water cannon, cardboard boxes you hide behind. And you can hide inside garbage cans. And the game really takes, I mean, I, I, truthfully, it takes two minutes probably or less to learn. It's, I mean, it's as simple as you only ever play cards on your turn. I saw some other games, some other, you know, of those style of kind of fighting games, right, where you're, you're throwing stuff at each other or you're attacking each other. And, you know, so many of those games had, um, you would play on everybody's turn, right? Like, mm-hmm. I play I play a defense. And I thought, I really like the idea that once you go in a four-player game, I take my turn, I'm committed to whatever is out in front of me. You know, I'm, I'm committed to hope that my defenses are going to hold and my kids are still going to be standing there when it gets back around. You know, so that's that's something that I really liked about it because it keeps the game very simple to learn. But the strategy starts to really come in with determining, you know, I, I only get to play two cards a turn. So do I want to play, do I want to play attack cards or, you know, water cards that are going to um, soak the kids? And then, you know, the idea is if you hit a kid once, the one side of the card uh, is a dry kid who's ready to, you know, throw water balloons and you hit them and then they, the opponent will flip that card over and now it's a kid that's soaked. Uh, and you hit them again, and then they're washed out, which is basically eliminated from the game. You know, it's it's one of those fun games to play uh, when you're you know, on your lunch or if you're waiting uh, to start your game night. Maybe it's the kind of the primer game you play, or maybe your friend, uh, you know, Rob is always late, and so you got to play a game till he gets there. And you know, this this is that that great game that will keep you entertained. You know, as we talked about family, you know, this is definitely a family friendly game, and you could certainly play it. Um, with your with your family, with your kids, um, on the box it says twelve and up. We've played with kids that age, and they picked it up really fast. But even after you've played the game several times, even myself, I've played the game. Gosh, you know, I'm mean, no lie, probably a hundred times I've played this game uh, in the process of you know play testing it and such. And I still will find myself thinking of, oh yeah, this would be a great strategy to do this this way instead of how I've been doing it. To me, that's what makes the game so entertaining. Is that you, you know, you can always come up with new ideas and new strategies to try and win and to try and make the game more fun. Um, and like I said, we, you know, for some stretch goals, uh, I want to add in some things that make the game more complex. Um, you know, some just kind of variant play styles to make it even more gamer friendly, you know, on that side. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about it. I think, I think it's a game that if people give it a chance, they're really going to like it. And, you know, 15 bucks, can't beat that. For oh. Kickstarter, that's, I think that's a pretty good price. Definitely a good price. If I remember right, you said that each player has four kids in front of them? Yep, each player gets four kids, and when all those kids are eliminated, you're out. That does mean there's some player elimination. That's something that in my designs I tried desperately to get rid of. Uh, and it's funny because when I designed this, I designed it, played it. I didn't even think about the player elimination until someone actually mentioned to me, one of the playtesters, uh, a fellow designer, said, so you got player elimination in this. I thought you really hated that. <laughs> <laughs> You know, what seems to happen in this game is uh, when somebody gets knocked out of the game, generally what ends up happening is uh, they find themselves rooting for someone or, you know what I mean, like still being involved in the game and the trash talking of the game. You know, what's cool is if the game lasts 15 minutes, your first person's not generally getting knocked out until about 10 minutes into the game, you know, on a normal game. And so when that happens, it's not like there's you know a ton of time where you're sitting there. It's not... It's not like losing at risk in the first half an hour and knowing, you know, that it's going to be another hour and a half before the game is over. and That's really going to be boring. Yeah, I, I don't mind player elimination if it's a game that's 30 minutes or less. Uh, right. I don't think that's bad at all. I mean, I certainly don't like player elimination game where 
it could be 30 minutes and I could lose in the first five. Yeah. You know, one of the things we talked a lot about with, with water balloon washout is if you lose water balloon washout and you are someone who plays games a lot and you lose in the first couple minutes, either you've made everyone really angry and they're all going after you <laughs> horribly wrong and, you know, ignored any idea of defense, you know, so it doesn't, it just doesn't happen. Enough. I mean, there are always exceptions, right? But you know, your average game, everybody gets knocked out about the same time. And I think if, I think if you get knocked out because you're doing something risky, you were doing something risky, you know, and, uh, and that's cool. Maybe that's your play style, right? You know, <laughs> so these kid cards we've talked about, there are 16 cards in the game uh, with kids on them. Uh, we've, uh, the artist has generated two of them, one boy, one girl, uh, both dry and soaked, just so you can kind of get an idea for what, what they're going to be like. And then we actually have a pledge level at, at $250 where you can, um, where you can pledge and you can provide a, a picture of a kid about between the ages of approximately 5 to 12. And uh, we'll actually take that kid, take that photo, create them as a character in the game, both a dried version and a soaked version. Uh, and then they'll actually be in the production copy of the game. And uh, in addition to that, we'll send out prints to them, uh, 8 by 10 prints of both of those drawings. Uh, so that's kind of a fun level if you want to be more involved uh, and you want to see your kid in the game. There's only 14 slots available, so I hope we sell them all. That'd be great. I've talked to people and they've been excited about the idea of actually being able to have their kid in the game. So, you know, any gamer dads out there that want mom to be pleased that you're backing games, this is a great idea, right? <laughs> your kid right in the game. Oh, that's awesome. And then uh, just uh, so it's $15 for just the game. Yep. One, one other fun thing about the game is we've, we've play tested up to 12 players uh, just by putting together multiple prototypes of the game. So you can buy up to four copies of the game on the Kickstarter uh, and they just scale at 15 apiece with free shipping. And that's another thing that's kind of cool is you can actually buy a few copies if you were so inclined. And if you have, a, say, a big group of people or, you know, or a big family and you want to you want to try it with them. Uh, the rules get tweaked just slightly, just to make it to make it work for that larger group of people. But it, it's a lot of fun with that. You know, it's, it's kind of chaos because yeah. it's a huge group of people. Uh, but uh, it's it's a lot of fun that way. So and you'll be uh, including those rule variants in the rule book then for a larger group. For sure. Awesome. So there you go. Buy multiple copies. Like I said, it's a, it's a fun game to try that out with. And also, if you're looking for a Buy an early Christmas present. Uh, you, you know, the plan is to have these in backers' hands before Christmas. You know, since we're doing it ourselves, there's no real big limitations to how long it's going to take to get it handled, uh, because the printer works really quickly, and uh, our artist has already done quite a bit of the artwork. Uh, we're just waiting for the funding for him to finish it, and also see, hey, what stretch goals we added with some, hopefully, some mini expansions to the game, uh, and he'll be drawing some more stuff for that. And then, uh, yeah, so we, the plan is to have it out before Christmas. Uh, that. We feel very comfortable with that. All right, Jason. So here's my wrap-up stuff for you. Sure. You've already kind of hit on it, but just to hit on it one more time for some of our listeners that are thinking about doing it, what's your number one tip or number one thing that you would tell people to make sure they do when they're looking at Kickstarter? You know, the biggest advice, as you probably guessed, is, is do your research. Just don't go blindly into it. You, you might strike gold doing that, but more than likely... <laughs> You're just risking your reputation when you put things on Kickstarter. And that, that's something that I think everyone should take extremely seriously when they do that. I know that I do. And that went a lot into my thinking about doing this is, you know, what does this say about me? And I need to make sure that if I'm going to say, this is what we're going to do, that's what we're going to do. And we're going to make it happen for the people. 
And then any last things you want to share with our listeners? It's kind of a plug for the podcast. If, if people are interested in hearing kind of the journey this game took uh, from, from the very beginning, uh, we have several episodes where we cover it. Um, you can find us at buildingthegamepodcast.com. We have an episode list. Uh, when you look through there, you'll see the ones where we talked about that. Plus, I plan on the Kickstarter page to link all those. Uh, I know some people are really interested in that kind of whole process. Uh, plus, if you listen to our show, we're going to be covering very, very closely the Kickstarter. And, you know, we, we're very open about things. So when we have numbers as to this is exactly how much the game costs to produce per copy, this is exactly how much it costs to ship, exactly how much we made, this is what Kickstarter took. We plan on making all of those things public because not enough people, I think, do that. Or, I mean, people want to be private. I get that. But we're not those people. <laughs> we're, we're making this to help people understand that game design is very accessible and it's something that, that you know a lot of people can do and they may not feel like they can. And so I'm hoping that by doing this, we'll really, we'll really help people. This will feel possible to more people. That's, that's, that's all we can hope for. So definitely check out the podcast. Water balloon washout, looking to launch July eighth. July should launch at noon EST on July eighth. Okay, and you're looking for seven thousand dollars. Yep. And it will end when? It ends on a Sunday night, uh, August eleventh. So it'll run thirty four days, I think. And I wanted to make sure it ended before Gen Con because I know once people get to Gen Con, they're busy. All right, Jason. Uh, thanks a lot for coming on and sharing all this wonderful information with our listeners. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been a good time. All right. Until next time, take care.